Let us be attentive to the reading of God's holy word. We're going to be entering into a text from Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 15 through chapter 7, verse 3. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan, who had taken the daughter of Meshalam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. As they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. And when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors." Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some at the front of their own homes. Praise be to God for his precious word to us this morning. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Lord, as we seek this morning to gain understanding from your holy word, we pray, God, that you would clear all of what... Uh, 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 distracts us from our hearts and our minds, Lord, so that you can feed us, Lord, and so that we would receive your word. Lord, uh, use me in a way that keeps me from sinning, cause me to be a good expositor, Lord, and to communicate the message that you desire to bring to this people in this day of worship. And I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I have experienced in my life a great affinity for the word of Nehemiah. It wasn't always there for me, uh, but in 2003, um, a church I pastored in Salem, Connecticut, decided to expand their ministry in the community by purchasing a run-down, dilapidated machine shop across the street and to convert it into a community center. And being a smaller church of roughly 60 to 70 people, as opposed to four or five, six hundred, um, we knew it would be a challenge to us, but with God's help, we were certain we could bring it to completion. Right out of the blocks, we received a lot of pushback. We received it from town officials, we received it from citizens in the town, and we even received it from some of our own church members. At times, we encountered difficulties in the completion of that project that appeared to be insurmountable. For instance, what we had initially estimated to cost 400000 and take us two to three years to complete cost us 980000 and took us ten years to complete. Ten whole years. After we paid off the initial mortgage of $265,000, we then embarked on a fundraising campaign over the course of several years to raise the required funds for construction, which amounted to over almost $700,000 more. 
during the course of making appeals to our church members and even to town folk to help, help support the construction of the building, uh, stretching them to the max, no question about it, requiring really sacrificial giving. We even saw close to a 20% increase in our own Sunday morning plate offerings as a result of being able to teach on stewardship, biblical stewardship to our congregation. So this project gave us many, many opportunities to teach and to preach and to be a witness in the community. Uh, We opened the building in 2013, 10 years it took us. We carried no debt. And when asked how we did it, the answer universally among every one of our church members was that God gave us the progress. God gave us the victory. The building itself was a witness to God's grace in the community. God allowed us to take a mangy, run-down, decrepit machine shop and turn it into what became known as the Christian Community Center, a building that now complements the very center of our town and is used by all sorts of different folks. So it was at the very beginning of that project I began to preach from the book of Nehemiah because, of course, the topic relates very well to that sort of a project. And so I'm thankful today to be able to be here and to share with you as well. We pick up where Pastor Rayberg left off a couple Sundays ago. should remember that the bulk of chapter 6 is filled with challenges to Nehemiah's authority from three opponents who've been agitators from the very beginning of the, of the book, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, all of whom are of pagan ancestry and all of whom had pretty much ruled the roost before Nehemiah showed up on the scene. From chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 14, there were six separate attempts on the part of these sinister characters to thwart the work of God, to to make it impossible for them to complete it. And in every case, Nehemiah was led by God to prevail against these characters. When we get to verse 15, these few verses that I've been given to preach on today kind of serve as as a hinge, a hinge to help us turn a corner from the whole narrative involving the restoration of the city wall and then to move us into the next phase of Israel's restoration, namely their spiritual education, which was an essential element in what was to happen to the people in order to be restored. But we do see in these few verses of the construction of the wall a significant victory in the people. We're told, for instance, in verse 15 that it took only 52 days. And because of that, it struck fear and reduced the self-esteem of Israel's enemies. It seems right, I think, to ask why. Why? Well, obviously the first thing is, is that to have completed such a huge project in uh, 52 weeks, never, never mind 52 years, uh, 52 days, I'm sorry, never mind 52 weeks or even 10 years, was, a, was pointed to God's intervention throughout. But even more than that, I think that there was this sense that these walls represented much more than just stone upon stone. If you remember back in chapter 4 and verse 2, Uh, Sambalat taunted the people and part of the taunt that he gave included a phrase that said, will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish? The burned ones at that. 
He was the equivalent of, na 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 you're not going to be able to do any of these things. You're going to be stopped by it. Even a fox could knock down this wall if he ran into it. But the Hebrew word here that's translated as revive is used for living things, not things that are dead. So in a very real sense, the rebuilding of this wall was a life-giving act. As long as the wall lay in disrepair, as long as it was in decay, it represented failure and even death. Indeed, it was a source of great shame for the people of Israel. But once it was repaired, the restored wall represented life and prosperity. Indeed, its completion in 52 days was so astonishing that the surrounding nations were brought to a sense of fear. They could only believe that God himself had interfered to make it so. The message had been sent. God was indeed in control of the situation. As a result, the great trouble and shame that we read of in Nehemiah 1.3 as a description of the people prior to the rebuilding of the wall had now come to rest on the nations, on the enemies that had taunted them, that had come against them in every way. Uh, we could even say that uh, this victory was in a very real sense pointing to something even greater than that. Namely, that it is only the Lord God Almighty who can bring order out of chaos. Just as he did a creation. Here in this narrative, we have a wonderful picture of how through the restoration of the wall, God brought an end to the people's shame. And if we were to take it to even another level, uh, this story leads us to think about the ultimate restoration that comes about in the new creation that we see so clearly as a foreshadowing of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Even down to the cunning and evil uh, motives of Satan as seen in the person of Tobiah, the Ammonite, who continues to, to eat away uh, and lurk behind the scenes, so to speak, throughout our text today. In fact, his presence is made known to us once again through what happens in verse 17 and following when we talk about this idea of compromise. Long before Nehemiah showed up on the scene, Tobiah had managed to cement alliances between himself and many of the more prominent families in Jerusalem, the movers and the shakers, so to speak. And he did so through intermarriage. This was a clear violation of Mosaic law. But as the old saying goes, blood is thicker than water. And so here was a classic example of how by uniting in marriage to these people, uh, with these people, to Tobiah and his, his kin, um, they were pledging their allegiance to him. It's really interesting that they did that because back in, uh, in an earlier chapter, Nehemiah called them on why they were selling themselves out by charging usury financially towards those their own kin, why they were actually uh, selling their own kin as slaves. Uh, and here they repented and they came back around to Nehemiah. But we see in this story with Tobiah's influence that he remained in cahoots with them. Um, uh, despite the fact that Tobiah had spent most of what we read in the book of criticizing anyone who promoted, who tried to promote the welfare of Israel uh, by taunting them, by 
plotting with others to stop construction by hiring false prophets to stir the people up and threatening more than once to bring shame and even death to Nehemiah. We have to ask, what was the attraction? Why did these people link themselves to Tobiah as they did? The answer, of course, I think comes uh, uh, to us in a clue in verse 18 where we read, For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Bechariah, as his wife. Uh, and they entered into an oath with him, we're told, in verse 18. This oath uh, is seen by many as nothing more than a contract in which they... Uh, they uh, sealed uh, by an oath, uh, and that contract was meant to bring financial gain. And as we all know, the love of money has a way of corrupting. And so upon completion of the wall, of course, they were now free to harvest their crops. They needed a way to sell their crops. It's very likely that Tobiah had deep trade relations with many of the nations around uh, uh, Jerusalem, and so those connections made for a handsome profit for all who were engaged in that process. And so they were inclined to support Tobiah rather than Nehemiah. They even mounted this letter campaign, this propaganda campaign designed to cause Nehemiah to fear Tobiah. Yet if Nehemiah feared anyone, he feared God, not Tobiah. He was not about to let compromise on the part of nobles interfere with the work of God, that work that God had called him to on the part of nations. So he set about commissioning a number of people to take responsibility for the city. We read, beginning in chapter 7, of the commissioning of these people. We're told, now when the wall had been built and I'd set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Someone once said, a city without a walls is no city at all. And in the ancient Near East, the absence of walls would be a source of ridicule and embarrassment. So clearly, these walls, reconstructed as they were, served several purposes. They served to instill a sense of unity among the people and brought security to them as well. And now that the people were able to engage in temple worship without enemy interference, Nehemiah began to commission gatekeepers and singers in Levites to set this ball in motion. Uh, to be able to worship without any kind of interference was critical in order to be able to restore the people. I can remember uh, historically in the New London and Groton, Connecticut area back in the 1700s, uh, congregational worship occurred every, uh, on every Sunday, on every Lord's Day, and there was a group uh, on the fringe of uh, the Protestant uh, Reformation who called themselves Rogerines. And it was their practice on Sunday mornings to enter into worship services all around the area and congregational churches and disrupt them. They would bring in people in wheelbarrows and they would shriek at the top of their lungs and they would bring total, uh, uh, just completely uh, disassemble the nature of worship in those churches. Uh, this was something that would no longer happen now in Israel. There would no longer be any interference. 
the assignment, the commissioning of these gatekeepers and singers and Levites helped to set the ball in motion to bring worship back to where it should be. And so we understand as well that the completion of these walls and the doors also made it possible for people to regulate commerce, to be able to control who entered and exited the city and to provide the level of security that they needed to be able to sleep at night. Additional safeguards, of course, were necessary as well, and so Nehemiah commissioned two others, Hanani and Hananiah. Their role was to oversee the whole city, the walled city. Both of these men were trusted beyond measure by Nehemiah. I mean, if we were to count on our hand how many friends we really trusted, really trusted, who were like brothers to us, as Nehemiah described Hanani, um, uh, there would be very few, but I would say that we should, if we don't have them, we should learn how to cultivate them because they, 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 they're like our brothers. We need them for sure. Uh, he was the agent, of course, Han- Hanani was the agent who first brought the news of uh, Israel's Jerusalem's plight to, to Nehemiah while Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. We don't know whether he was really a blood relative or not, even though Nehemiah calls him a brother. But then we have Hananiah, who's described as the commander of the castle or the citadel. Uh, so we get the, the, the impression that this man is really the, the security agent. He's the chief of security. Uh, that's where he would focus his skills. And yet in his commissioning, Nehemiah was careful to say that Hananiah was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Uh. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, the fear which characterized Hananiah's relationship with God entailed a deep and abiding, reverent and respectful attitude towards God. And of course, we use that a lot when we talk about the fear of God, what it means. And this is certainly a component of fearing God. There's no question about that, this intellectual and emotional assent. This is what it means to fear God. But I think also there are other elements to the fear of God, and I think they're best described in a book in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10, 12-13. We find these words of Moses, where he says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Thus, to fear God is not only an emotional or an intellectual assent to who He is, it also involves walking and loving and serving and keeping the commands of God and all of this for our own good. This is not the kind of fear experienced by God's enemies. This kind of fear is experienced by God's people alone. And it's a healthy fear. A fear that we all need to experience, I believe. When Nehemiah appointed all of these people, commissioned all of these people, uh, uh, even in the midst of this compromising encounter that he had with Tobiah and those who were interested with him. It brings us to this last point where a man like Nehemiah, Nehemiah who's called to do what he did by God, uh, to lead a people, to build that wall, to rebuild it, also has to place 
uh, put in place conservation. And so that's exactly what he did. He told them, let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. Uh, do not let the gates be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. What good comes to finishing a project like this if you don't, if, if you don't do anything to keep it from languishing, if you don't put protections around it, if you don't act to preserve it? The... The, in order to preserve all of the benefits that came from the rebuilding of the wall controls needed to be put in place. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. He did something, however, that was unusual when he said, don't let the gates be opened until the sun is hot. Normally, in any city situation in the ancient Near East, the gates would be opened at the crack of dawn and closed when the sun set, when it became dark. Uh, but in light of the threats that Jerusalem had experienced from its enemies without. Nehemiah insisted on tightened security. He insisted that the gates be opened only when the sun was hot. What does this mean? Well, it was a delay. Uh, it would ensure that everyone in the city was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, that they were up and they were dressed and they'd had their first latte and they were ready to go. And uh, so that if the city were to be attacked... Everybody would be ready to defend it uh, without question. When emphasizing this level of security, Nehemiah commissioned even still further a team of guards, not only placing them at the doors of the wall, but also uh, near their own homes. Clearly, with all these things in place, clearly this particular mission given by God to Nehemiah was complete. The rebuilding of the walls was finished. Thus we can say, as Pastor Rayberg's sermon title suggests, mission accomplished. Very well done. And one easy way to approach such narratives as we read here in our lives is to consider what they tell us about the individual person. What do they tell us about Israel? And finally, what do they tell us about God? So I'd like to close by just reflecting a bit on each of those elements. First, what do they tell us about the person of Nehemiah? Well, certainly he stood out as a servant leader whose goal it was in all things to bring glory to God. His unfailing trust in God, his singleness of purpose as a trait is really a trait or traits that we're all called to emulate. Uh, in fact, you know, as we look at the life uh, of Nehemiah as portrayed in this, in this uh, autobiography, so to speak, um, we see in him a person who has set a very high standard, a very high standard, one that makes it seem like it's an ideal that none of us can meet. But the truth is, I think we're all called to move in that direction, to, to pursue that kind of a standard in our walk of faith. Because each and every one of us, like Nehemiah, has been set apart to do a unique work that God has called us to do. Each and every one of us, uh, as reminded by the Apostle Peter, are of a chosen race. We are of a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people of his own possession. 
that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Every time we obey the call of God, we send a message to the world at large. Namely, that God and God alone is to be praised for everything, even for the rebuilding of this wall. Next, what does this tell us about Israel? Well, they certainly had their share of ups and downs. No question about that. Throughout their history, they have repeated a cycle over and over and over again, just as humanity has in general, namely creation and then fall and then redemption. Uh, It's amazing how time and again they have fallen down due to their their sin and yet how God picks us up. You know, the old expression, we fall down and God picks us up. Nothing could be more truthful than that. Time and again, he, he brings them to a place of restoration out of his grace and his mercy. While we cannot possibly keep all of our promises to God, he's always faithful to keep his promises to us. And this cycle of creation and fall and redemption finds itself in Scripture beginning right in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and goes all the way through the pages of Scripture. And the book of Nehemiah is just one more illustration of this kind of a cycle. We need to be mindful of that because it's, there's only one who brings this cycle to a close. And that's how we need to begin to talk about what God's uh, place is in all of this. And I would say to you, and I hope it's an encouraging word more than anything else, is that God is all about the process of restoring a fallen people. He's all about that. He is a God of restoration. He is a God of redemption. You know, when we look at this narrative of the person and work of Nehemiah, all of the troubles he ran into, the evil influence of Tobiah in the midst of all of this, we can think of it as a foreshadowing of what happened in the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He takes the lifeless and revives them to eternal life. We whose walls may be lying in rubble, we whose lives may be marked by shame and by fear and defeat, who suffer the jeers and the taunts and the threats of the world, are called to know for certain that God through Christ is the only one who can revive us. He brings revival. Only Jesus can bring the order out of the chaos of our lives. Only Jesus can break that cycle of creation and fall and redemption. For in Jesus, the consummation of all things will occur. Know for sure that all things will be made right in the end. And that's a promise that applies to all who know and love the Lord. And so in the words of Doug Rayburg, I invite you to think about it. Amen.